I wonder if I might hunt for sherds in your garden. Sherds? Well, I have an archaeological interest. I'm a student of that in my own time. Old things generally. You're listening to Sherd's Podcast, a journey through the outskirts of literature. Once upon a time, when our golden-domed Kiev was under Polish rule, there lived an old woman who was the widow of a forest caretaker. Her small hut was located in the forest where the road to the Katajewska Pustyn monastery lay. Here, with her bare hands, she eked out a living, and the only delight in her life was her sixteen-year-old daughter, Horpinka. In truth, her daughter was a pure delight, She was maturing like a young cherry tree, tall and slender, and her black hair, entwined in braids, gleamed like a raven's wing beneath the coloured ribbons. Her big eyes blackened and glowed with a quiet fire, like two half-extinguished coals in which the sparks still ran. Fair-skinned, rosy-cheeked and fresh, like a young flower at dawn, she was growing up to trouble the hearts of the lads, and incite the envy of the other maidens. She was the apple of her mother's eye, and God's toilers, the holy fathers of Katajewska Pustyn, viewed her with pleasure and kindness as their future fellow in heaven whenever she came to them for a blessing. That was the opening passage of the story Rusalka by the Ukrainian romantic author Orest Somov and was taken from the collection The Witches of Kiev, which features a range of Somov stories published between 1827 and 1833. The collection is published by Sova Books and the translations are by Svetlana Yakovenko. Though written in Russian, these Gothic tales draw heavily on Ukrainian folklore and introduce a distinctly regional flavour to the palette of the romantic literature of the 1820s and 30s. Bold Cossack warriors, perilously seductive water sprites and cunning witches haunt the pages of the collection and bring into being the theories espoused by Somov in his seminal essay of 1823 on romantic poetry. Over the next hour, I'm joined by Dr. Keith Wormsley to discuss the work and influence of this forgotten innovator of romantic prose in Russian. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So welcome to episode 18 of Sherd's podcast. My name's Sam Pullum. I'm here with Keith Wormsley. Today we're discussing a recent publication from Sova Books, The Witches of Kiev by Orest Somov. That title story was originally published in Russian in 1833. So I mentioned I have a, a guest here whom you probably haven't met before. Keith, I was wondering if you could tell us a little something about your history with Russian literature and how you got involved in it. Yep. I started studying Russian at university, uh, as most people do. My degree was very much based around the literary aspect. After that, I wanted to do postgraduate work focusing on, to begin with, romanticism and then later in century symbolism. And then I wrote a thesis concentrating really on romantic prose written in the 1830s at the University of St. Andrews, which I finished in 2014 now so okay so we're talking about near contemporaries of artists some of us then that you were focusing on yes yeah, certainly and see certainly a lot of crossover in the different themes so the writer i focused on was called alexander Vieltman, who lived from 1800 to 1870 so probably you would say the contemporary of pushkin so maybe 10 12 years after someone was born but actually experiments in a lot of the same genres, so short tales inspired by folkloric themes, and then later, well, the writer I focused on moves to kind of expand these into longer works. I think that was really what I was focusing on, Mm -hmm. Uh, the interplay of folkloric elements and longer prose forms at the 
emergence really of what you could call the, the Russian novel. At the time studying those things you came across Orest Tsomov as well, right? Yes, I did. Actually I think the first time I heard of him was when I was on my year abroad in Russia. I did a bit of studying at the university whilst teaching a bit of English. And I was going to have to sit on, on a few classes there, uh, Russian students learning Russian literature. And although they weren't studying any of Sonov's prose, some of his critical work, particularly uh, written in the 1820s, was very seminal. And uh, they focused a lot on that and used it really to show how the major literary concerns at the time. Having now read a little bit more by Sonov, what, what are your impressions of, of this particular collection. I think the first thing that strikes you is the, the kind of variety of styles and the different narrative voices he employs. I mean, the first, yeah, the first story I thought was, uh, when we talked about this, the most derivative. I think there's quite a lot of romantic ornamentalism in this one, but I think what is interesting, the more you read, and the more you read around criticism about Somov as an author, then that is something that is seen very much as something that is idiosyncratic or kind of rare mm. in his tales. He's much more famous as a more mimetically inspired author or as more motivated by realistic depiction and realistic poetics at a time when realism hasn't really become prominent in Russian letters. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure we'll go on to discuss John Mercero later as one yeah. of the only critics, really, to have written about Somov. And he is um, very much of the opinion that Somov is a mm. primarily realist writer almost before the age of realism begins. Massaro seems to suggest that Somov creates almost a blueprint for certain ideas that were going to be fleshed out and perhaps taken to a, to a higher level by what he refers to as more gifted writers. Mm. Yeah, the observation he makes, uh, which stands out most clearly, is from uh, his experiments with psychological realism. So his experiments with 308 discourse, his experiments with interior monologue, the reaction to the kind of concentration on momentary changes of consciousness. And Mercer goes so, so far really is to set Somov at the beginning of a line of development that will go into Lermontov and and Tolstoy. So yeah, I mean, from that perspective, it's difficult to find a, a more, uh, shall we say, worthy ancestor. Mm-hmm. So he's, if perhaps for you, not quite so interesting in terms of the work it's, itself. It's more about his place in literary history for you. As you said, you call him a kind of ancestor of things that, that come later. Mm. Yeah, I think, um, I wouldn't say I don't find him no interesting. I think that from, in the point of view of um, what my major experience of romanticism was, and of uh, romantic, for romantic fantastic in particular, uh, was his relationship to kind of idealist philosophy. You find writers, writers such as Vladimir Adoyevsky in the 1830s, who's using uh, folkloric supernatural motifs in order to really articulate this romantic quest for the absolute. It's, that's not really something that uh, some of it interested in is far more interested in first of all the idea of the, the folkloric and the supernatural as expressing a spirit of a time but also not so much as looking for an objective absolute but simply the psychological experience of it and I think um, going back to what Mercer said that is perhaps why he likes Somo so much because that kind of approach that psychological approach remains in Russian literature through the like 1840s 1860s into these great authors whereas the more the more obviously romantic experiments this idea of um the folkloric the gothic as uh, searching for an absolute kind of dies in the 1840s i mean there's a little future for that and when you're talking about some of his interest in psychological realism or uh, at least a early prototypical version of that um in terms of this collection are you thinking more of the final story in god's fool or uh, do you think it appears throughout this collection i think yes in terms of um this collection i would say yeah the holy fool is where that most clearly comes out the most obviously perhaps um mimetically driven story as well i guess the question rises then uh, i mean most the stories that Mercero talks about and that he really develops what he sees as some of his innovation, unfortunately, aren't included in this collection. So you've got a story like Gaida Mac, which came out in 1828, which is something that Mercero focuses on in terms of interior monologue and psychological realism. And you then have another story in 1830, which, again, in terms of innovation, is famous for being a story within a story and playing with narratorial viewpoint. Also notable for its use of, for its reproduction of more provincial, natural, idiomatic 
speech patterns. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. So both of those tales that really Mercer is keenest to focus on as what some of does is something that is completely new. And not, and not present in, in this way. <laughs> I suppose it's interesting that even though quite a number of the stories seem to take almost a form of fairy tales or or fables or something like that, um, there is a real coexistence of the supernatural and the mundane. There seems to be a kind of acceptance within the tales of these quite strange spectral happenings, almost as though it's a part of, very much a part of life. So although they most of these stories don't have a realist identity, they are set very much in, in the real world. Yeah, I think you're entirely right. When you talk about being presented as if they are true, I think you have to remember that um, Russia at this time is still very much a superstitious country. In fact, there have been various studies going even into... Soviet period detailing beliefs in sorcerers, beliefs in um, diviners of the future. Mm. And uh, one of the books, I was in preparation for this, which is a study of Russian folklore, cites two particular studies that were done towards the end of the 19th century about the frequency of superstitions and about the frequency in particular of perceived, shall we say, magic makers or sorcerers. And go so far as to say that every village in Russia would have had somebody who was deemed to have some form of uh, association with mm. the supernatural. So, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, there are, there are different presentations. Most of the stories, as you say, in uh, this collection present the supernatural as objective. There is very little, shall we say, doubt as mm. to its presence. The final tale, which you've already mentioned, uh, Gospel, is slightly different in the sense that that is um, hints at the supernatural portrayed through the consciousness of this figure of the Holy Fuel yeah. rather than given any objective reality by, uh, by the narrator. Mm. It struck me, since we're talking about the coalescence of the mundane and the magical, the title of this collection that you brought along in in russian it's quite an interesting editorial decision right mm. this is maybe i'm wrong but this is not somov's title this is an edited no, collection yeah, um, yeah. i'm not even sure he published a collection of his own tales mm. in his lifetime i think they were mainly done in journals I and mean, as far as i'm aware this is one of the the first um, soviet collections of his books and entitled specifically boyli e Nebilisi. So really specifically referring to what has happened or what could potentially happen, what is very similar and what isn't. And within that, he uses uh, various genre direct clarifications. So skazka, which is the usual Russian word for fairy tale, and that implies particularly at this time, use of the supernatural. But then other, should we say, more uh, realist genres. So povist, which is just the word for tale. Mm. That's um, generally a more realist or mimetically driven story. Also, Raskaz. So again, not usually employing folkloric or supernatural motifs. Um, generally a realist story, but this time not literary, like a povist, but more of an informal, I say, conversational tone, more than mm-hmm. spoken rather than... And, and are these categories, are they enduring categories? Are they categories that some of himself would have been aware of? Or are these later introductions that tell us more about the Soviet way of looking at? So, Skaska is an enduring category. At the time, there were folk skazki. There were also, uh, since that time, the emergence of the literary fairy tale as well. So not one that is um, seen to come from the people, actually born from the folk, but one which is self-consciously stylized by an author. And this is um, a very popular genre in the 1830s. Provist, yep. Uh, again, similarly, probably the most common generic distinction at this time for kind of a short piece of prose. Yeah, here well, in Poland, the uh, word for novel is powieść. Yeah, it's interesting because in English is novel, in French and Russian it's a roman, and then in Polish yeah. it's powieść. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did really enjoy reading these stories, actually. I've found quite a um, consistency of mood and tone throughout them. It feels like quite a nicely chosen selection even though it might not include those tales that are more critically esteemed at least by John Mercero but I found lots of things to really enjoy about them I particularly love this the equivalence of seductiveness and the supernatural that the supernatural is not only presented as something dangerous or frightening but but almost something transcendental and positive at times so that through damnation you can almost achieve, achieve transcendence or something like that no, i think that yeah i think that is um that is interesting I and mean, the idea of the attraction of um the supernatural is something that we find in gogol as well mm. i think what um, is common to generally all these tales be it in 
even if somebody glossed over the introduction, is this kind of conflict between godly and the ungodly, mm. um, whether it be through opposing, say, uh, Poland and the Ukraine, where Poland as a Catholic country is seen as ungodly and Ukraine as orthodox is seen as godly, or one of the tales folks about this um, is said at the very change of Kievan Rus from pagan, from a pagan culture to a Christian culture. Kupalo Eve. A lot of them begin as well with somebody coming back from a war, uh, but this particular one is about a soldier coming back from a war who pledges, who comes to Kiev and finds that it's been Christianized whilst he was away, but pledges his support to pagan gods. And to go back to Adoyevsky, for instance, and the more philosophical approach to romantic folklorism, in his tales as well, we see this idea of a turning away from reality and trying to find a greater truth. It's a very ambiguous experience. Potentially, well, so very positive and potentially even more real, more true than the reality in which we live. So that is certainly a current that exists in Lisbon yeah. at the time. And it's certainly something that we see in the story Urosalka as well, when Horpenka, I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, gives a sort of testimony of what it is to live under the water in this kind of shadow world. It's described as a place that is more real, is brighter, is more vivid than, than the real world, which is just full of cold and hunger and monotony. I mean, that is obviously a character from uh, Russian folklore and the various tales or various legends that you can bring um, one of these creatures, Orusalka, back from the dead, but it's interesting to see that inverted mm. uh, in that way and see one invite an actual real person to go and um, with them. So, yeah, I thought that was, um, that was an interesting touch. Maybe before we go on, Keith, uh, we should say something about Orest Somov's life. And actually, in, in English, there's not a great deal available. There is a short article by John Mercero on uh, Orest Somov, an introduction. It's also the introduction to this collection. Mercero has, has written a longer book as well yeah. called um, Between Romanticism and Realism. That's right, right. yeah. Well, I'm not even sure if that's still in print. I certainly didn't find it readily available. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's born in 1793 to a noble family, but John Mercer refers to, to it as Ukrainian gentry family of, of modest means. I'm not even sure of the exact location of his birth. Do you have that information, Keith? Yes, it's in Kharkov province. Yeah. In the city of Volchansk. I didn't find that, unfortunately. <laughs> okay, this is, this is the introduction to my... Out of your Russian edi edition. Okay, great. And he studies at the University of Kharkov um, in northeast eastern Ukraine. His first literary works appear in, in Ukraine as well, in the Ukrainian Herald, where he published verse. But at quite a young age, he moves to St. Petersburg and Im immediately begins mixing in the literary circles there and meets quite a, a few young, promising writers, um, with whom you're probably far more familiar than I, I am, Alexander Bestushev. Again, a, a prose writer. Now he's mostly associated with tales of the exotic and of the, the kind of eastern edge of the uh, the Russian Empire, as it was at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, that time so Caucasus places like Georgia Armenia the tribes that exist there which um, yeah function kind of as a as a role in not just in Bestuja but in Pushkin as well as kind of the, the idea of the, the romantic other a seductive life of freedom and um, I guess simplicity in a, in a more Rousseauian ideal oh interesting I wonder if there's any of that available in, in English if it's been translated or I would say Bestuja is more f famous than some of yeah. So if there's collections of some of there should be collections of Bestuja. Okay, good to know. And then another writer with a German name, Wilhelm Kuschelbecker. And both of these writers are uh, future Decemberists, apparently, and later some of get slightly em embroiled in that. And Yes, yeah, true. It's interviewed, embroiled in the kind of fallout, but I think ultimately found uh, innocent of any serious... Yeah, involvement. Yeah. But he seems to establish something of a, of a reputation and publishes quite prolifically in, in a number of journals. There's this quite famous journal, Northern Flowers, where he is the first to pu publish prose fiction and is particularly, if I'm, if I'm correct, is particularly well uh, respected for his, his essay on, on romantic poetry, which is, might even be something of a manifesto of sorts, a mixture of a survey and a manifesto. Yeah, I certainly think yeah. so. Well, beyond that, he writes a number of kind of annual reviews. 
for that particular journal, I think. His essay on romantic poetry, which comes out in 1823, is really one of the first major studies on kind of romantic direction in Russia. I mean, a lot of it builds on uh, translations of mm, Madame Steyl, mm. that uh, Madame Steyl's Delalimania in particular, or about Germany, that um, some of had translated and published, uh, I think in the same journal the year before. And through Madame Steyl, uh, Schlegel as well. So we find a lot of the ideas of German romanticism, mm. typical, uh, they're typical German romanticism in this essay in particular. Some I've talks about turning to look at the Russian past, Russian sources of literature. I think what's interesting is he doesn't um, advocate a turning against Western sources, which l- later writers will do in this decade. Uh, he rather thinks talks about uh, an assimilation, so a synthesis of um, Western models and the Russians. So he makes a point that nothing should be off limits to the artist. Mm. Uh, in particular, the things that he focuses on as key to romantic poetry, this idea of um, the picturesque, something that's um, novel and something that's um, of the, f- the folk. I got the this, this sense uh, from what I was able to read of that essay that there was kind of an understanding that Russia didn't have a kind of classical period or it didn't have its own antiquity or own conception of classical antiquity and so was guilty of perhaps borrowing too much from traditions foreign to it and the really interesting example he gives as the first culture to have what he calls romantic poetry is actually arabic culture which was a surprise to me was surprised how quite how wide-ranging the essay is and he, he writes in the epoch of its brief dominion over europe this people referring to the arabs cultivated the arts and science sciences barely existent in this part of the world at that time enjoyed great success in them and ensured its own glory by being the first to show europeans it is possible to possess a native poetry independently of the legends of greece and rome and the project of the the second half of this this essay seems to be to encourage russian writers to find something to celebrate about their own indigenous culture yeah the 1820s in terms of broader discussion of romanticism which is very important it's the first time that uh, there's really a serious group of educated intellectuals discussing well yeah i guess it's ironic that these ideas of romanticism themselves these ideas of turning towards a native literature creating a literal literature actually come from germany they don't come from russia perhaps anyway these discussions of kind of european ideas crystallize in this essay but i mean this focused around two particular concepts of um narodnist or yeah being the kind of national sufficiency of the people and miestnist, um, so looking at a, a local colour in mm. literature. And these are debated really throughout this decade as ways forward. And it's interesting that you talk about um, the Russian history. So particularly this time, and in, and in St. Petersburg, which dominates intellectual life, there is a sense of being cut off from narodness, being cut off from a national idea of what Russia is, because that was seen as something that was alien, introduced by Peter the Great, and that intellectual life, as it is, is um, dominated more by Western ideas. So uh, as a response to that, and this is where Ukraine comes in, really, authors at the time will either turn to the Russian past, so we have historical novels in the style of Walter Scott, the most famous name that is uh, Zagoskin, or they turn more to Ukraine, Ukrainian present, which they'll see as a kind of a remnant of what Russia was before Peter the Great took over. Mm. They try and construct this idea of what Russian literature is and Russian national literature is going to be as, as part of that project. Yeah, that, I mean, that's, that's really interesting in terms of not just the geographical spread of what is available to the prospective Russian romantic writer, but that that simultaneously seems to blur into something temporal as well, and that to visit perhaps Ukraine is an idea of going into the past somehow. It's, that's very curious. In this essay, Somov does really push forward the idea of the range of cultures within uh, within such a vast country. There's a section where he writes that without even leaving the boundaries of their homeland, Russian poets can fly from the stern and somber legends of the North to the opulent and brilliant fictions of the East, from the educated intellect and taste of 
of Europeans to the crude and unaffected moors of the hunting and nomadic peoples. It's, it's a really good example of that simultaneous temporal and ge- geographical range, yeah. At the time as well, and to be honest, there is a sense of Russia, we're talking about a romantic sense about the Russian spirit as being the most universal, because it is such a massive country, because it is uh, so diverse. So you have, say, an intellectual of the late 18th century like Karamzin, who has this anecdote of he's sat in a coach with a Frenchman, an Englishman, a German, and because he speaks all those languages, because he understands everybody, because he is the possessor of the universal soul, he is the one that allows everybody to speak between themselves. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, as we go back to a bit of flagrant self-promotion, the author I uh, focused on in my PhD, yeah. um, he writes... Again, an essay uh, in a similar vein where he talks about the Russian identity as being between East and West and therefore containing the whole world in itself as as much as possible, as being really and this universality of spirit. I was really curious about what you said of the irony of the project is that it's something almost not stolen, but influenced by um, yeah. romantic projects that already ex- exist in, in Germany and perhaps not quite to the same extent in England. I think similar things are going on in England if we if we think of I don't know Wordsworth and Coleridge using the language spoken by uh, rural communities and so on and obviously we might see it as a kind of cultural appropriation nowadays uh, because of the way Wordsworth talks about purifying that language and so on but there's a sense that some of his talking about something much more organic. The idea that poetry can kind of grow out of these cultures in a, a much less systematic way. I don't know, this is the, the impression I had. But when you, when you talk about Germany at this time, are you referring to the Brothers Grimm and das Knaben Wunderhorn, the collection of uh, sort of folk poetry, or are you thinking more on the sort of theoretical side of things, through romantic? You can trace a line in this essay through the theoretical side, through style to through the writings of Schlegel and his idea of modern and ancient poetry. So moving away from classical models of, let's say, more sensual more corporeal, more bodily appeal to more modern spiritual concerns in the poetry. Yeah, I think the, the Brothers Grimm certainly did spur similar kind of collecting uh, vogue for collection in Russia. Some of himself, for instance, is known for his collections of um, tales of, what we call them, treasure tales, perhaps, mm. in his native Ukraine. So kind of folk anecdotes about places where where there is buried treasure and where some on one magical evening uh, by performing certain rites this would be revealed to people and he's not the only one there are certainly a lot of writers at this time who turn to folk models so are we almost talking about a kind of ethnographic project in the same way that was happening in germany in the actual collecting of folk tales or is it more of an imaginary process here the main folk collector and ethnographic project that i know is dal who's about 20 years after Samov. I think at this time, Samov is more influenced in the kind of, of the literary fairy tale or making it, using these sources and making them more palatable for a more educated audience. I think the actual ethnographic project comes later. And the culmination of that is um, Afanasiev's collection, which doesn't come out of the, the last decades of the, of the 19th century. There is a very much a creative element in the depiction of these legends and so on, uh, rather than it coming you know, out of the soil, as it were. I think something, yeah, something else that I found when, when reading around this is I looked at um, not a lot has, as you said, has been written on some of, but a lot more has been written on Gogol. And if you look at Gogol's reception at the time, then there are various Ukrainian authors who see him as um, portraying a false picture of mm. Ukrainian life, or mm. yeah, again, transforming it, transfiguring it to make it appeal to educated um, St. Petersburg readership. Maybe we can talk about that idea of uh, the inclusion of Ukraine within pan-Russian national identity. Because although it's sort of infused with with local colour, there's very little about what's in this collection that we could call very strictly nationalistic in terms of Ukrainian identity. It seems to be about including Ukraine within Russia as as an idea somehow. Yes, certainly. I mean, um, the programme after the December 
rebellion, which you mentioned, was dominated by Nicholas I's official conception of Russian identity, the Tsar himself, orthodoxy, and nationhood, uh, again, narodist. I guess like in the Soviet Union, there were very little space within that for, shall we say, uh, individual national identities. So everything kind of became a part of the overarching um, political sense of Russian unity. As I understand, it's not a view shared by absolutely everyone, even in intellectual life. I mean, I came across a writer, Dolgoruki. I found a comment of his that was in a book called Russia and Ukraine and the Discourse of Empire from Napoleonic to post-colonial times by Miroslav Shkandri. And Dolgoruki was was quoted referring to Ukraine and saying of the region that I no longer understood the popular language. The local people spoke with me, answered my questions, but did not understand me, while I required translation for three out of every five words. Where the local language ceases to be comprehensible to us, there the boundaries of our native land end. It's a kind of linguistic conception of what actually forms national identity or national consciousness and that Ukraine can't, as a result, be included within it. You know, it's the outer reaches of the the nation in that people are speaking a different dialect, and that that's the distinction he makes as to what can be included within the idea of Russia. But Somov is very much writing in literary Russian, you said, right? I mean, there are Ukrainian words he uses, but they are explained for educated St. Petersburg readers. Well, I guess in itself, though, that could be seen as... Interesting. Maybe Samov sees himself as somebody who is part of that project of taking what's the Ukrainian spirit and making it, turning it into Russian and making it through transferring it into the Russian language, mm. cementing the ties between Russia and Ukraine. It's interesting, you, you know, you could think of him, you know, as maybe a communicator of that identity or at least in literary terms, bringing Ukraine into the into the mainstream somehow or at least with under the umbrella of romantic poetry. You know, it's this, uh, this idea that he's talking about of the vast range of possibilities available to, to the Russian writer and clearly he sees Ukraine as, as a part of this. The closest thing to a kind of nationalism we get is maybe this anti-Polish strand in it right there are quite a number of polish figures who crop up in a sort of negative light throughout the collection true i think um yeah generally centered on first of all catholicism and secondly the more aristocratic noble nature so it seems to be very much focusing on uh, class and religious distinctions do you think it's a coincidence that the november uprising happens in 18 between 1830 and 31 and that most of these stories we get published around that time or shortly afterwards uh do you think Uh, that anti-polish sentiment could i wouldn't have thought it's a coincidence no no (laughs) for most of these stories we have historical settings for quite a few of them it's the period in which is it right to say right bank ukraine was under polish lithuanian commonwealth yeah i think you're probably right i think there must be a reason for that i know the first one definitely yeah because that's set just after the ukrainian uprising of 1630 which eventually failed so yeah that one certainly i think is um when northern ukraine is controlled by yeah in the title story the witches of of kiev there's also a pole who just appears during the the sabbath he's out there causing mayhem on the bald mountain uh, <laughs> it doesn't seem a coincidence that he's mentioned and in the story rusarka the reason for our protagonist's punishment and being turned into rusarka sorry say it the polish way rusalka is that she falls in love with this polish nobleman and that it's a kind of betrayal of perhaps of maybe her religious identity but also of her culture as well i was wondering if by exploiting anti-polish sentiment some of is doing even more work for the inclusion of ukraine within pan-russian identity i don't know i mean my enemy's enemy is my friend yeah it makes sense yeah it'd be interesting i mean from the um, the only thing i well, my experience and my learning is generally from the Russian perspective towards the Ukrainian. And um, it, it wasn't seen as that different. It, it wasn't known as Ukraine at this time. It was known as Maladesia or Little Russia. And uh, there was a... Um, yeah, and, and there was... Um, I don't think there was a sense of antagonism or animosity between the two countries. Whether it might have been different from the Ukrainian side to the Russian, I don't know. Um, 
Is there perhaps a class difference or anything like that? More provincial, more parochial, but because of that, perhaps more more true to a to a Slavic spirit as um, as it might have been in pre-Petrine Russia. Yeah, as you said, people a lot of Russian authors. There was a vogue for Ukraine in in the 1820s as Russian authors uh, were exploring this idea of Russian identity, not not a pan-Russian identity or pan-Slavic identity, not just a great Russian identity mm. as they refer to themselves. Okay, so it's not as if Samov has to do an enormous amount of work to kind of push Ukraine to the to the fore. That it's already sort um, of, no, already uh, in the eighteen twenties. The... Um, there's a it's very popular in Saint Petersburg society. Uh, mm-hmm. Tales about the tales about Ukraine are very common in in journals. Yeah, the, the journal European Messenger, a European Vestnik, which um, throughout the 1820s publishing what are known as little Russian anecdotes. Probably born of a, maybe a slightly patronizing ethnographic interest, but yeah, it's certainly, it's certainly possible to talk of a vogue for things Ukrainian at this time. The autumn wind burst the waves on the Dnieper River and issued a muffled roar in the forest. Yellow leaves fell from the trees and rustled as they whirled along the road, and the evening frowned upon the rainy sky on the night Khotpinka went to the sorcerer. No one knows what he told her, only that in vain did her mother wait for her all that evening, and in vain did her mother wait the next day, and on the third day. No one knew what happened to her. A few days later, A fisherman from the monastery explained that when he was sailing his boat, he had seen a young girl on the banks of the Dnieper. Her face was scratched with tree needles and twigs, her hair messed up and her ribbons torn. But he did not dare to swim closer to her out of fear that it was either someone possessed or a wandering soul of the dead who had been a grave sinner. Yes, so I thought it might be interesting to talk about some of these folkloric elements within the stories and my favorite story in the collection is probably Rusalka which is seemingly a very popular and enduring figure from Slavic folklore uh, I know that here in Poland it also exists as Urusalka. We were talking a few weeks ago, Keith, about how it can appear in various forms. I mean, the form we have in this story is of um, female entities, something like a water sprite or even close to a siren or something like that. They they haunt riverbanks and, and bodies of water and tickle people to death. Yeah, this goes back to what you were saying earlier about um, the seductive quality of the supernatural and the folkloric. Which, in terms of the Rosalka, is something that is germane to uh, Ukrainian folklore. So, in Ukraine, they're generally seen as quite young, beautiful, nubile individuals wearing very diaphanous clothes. Um, whereas in northern Russia, according to my source, they are generally old and attractive. Uh, with unnaturally large breasts and long disheveled hair. Right, okay. So yeah, so I think it's possible definitely to talk of a more seductive element in Ukrainian folklore than uh, anywhere else. I mean, there are various studies into Rusalka, but one thing that everybody can agree on is that they're generally associated with uh, the unclean dead. So there might be some a maiden who committed suicide by drowning, or it's the souls of unbaptized children and then eventually become a Rusalka. They are particularly, generally seem to be particularly active in something that's called Rusalnaya week, which occurs towards late spring. And I think it is very much related to harvest time. So, and then like a lot of these sprites, they are both potentially positive and potentially negative. So... Um, one particular legend is if you catch one at this time uh, out of water, then it kind of dissipates into its what's what liquid form mm-hmm. and uh, refreshes the land and uh, promotes the growth of crops. There are two uh, Risaki. There's one in a later story as well, but they are generally seen as uh, very... Actually, no. Um, the second one is certainly very negative and very harmful. Mm. Um, the first one... Certainly unholy, but again, as, as, as you referred to, there's this idea of perhaps this life as being, although unholy, more attractive. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, it's it's quite explicit in that in that way. Um, I can read the little passage from the book where um, the character Horpenka, who is has been turned into a Rusarka, 
It's been captured by her mother during this Green Week, which incidentally, here, yeah, here is called Green Jelana Shantki. Uh, yeah, so she's been captured and her mother wants to cure her of this condition. But she speaks about having no desire to be cured at all. She, she says, even encouraging her mother to, to, to take part, she says, throw away your worthless fear and join us at the bottom of the Dnieper. It's fun there. It's easy there. Everyone becomes young there and just as frisky as a trickle of water and just as playful and carefree as the young fish where we are the sun shines brighter and the morning breeze breathes more freely what is there in your land here misery is all around the hunger and the cold but there we know no misery we are content to splash in the water play with rainbows and look for gemstones at the river bottom and amuse ourselves with them in winter we are warm under the ice as though under a fur coat and in the summer on a clear night we go out to bask in the rays of the moon amuse ourselves have fun and often play tricks on the living i thought it was really curious how transcendent this appears this description and particularly its use of natural imagery you know everything there is beauty and light and it's the kind of imagery that's so often used in this period as in romanticism perhaps beyond russia and english romanticism as connection with freedom and liberty and it paints the real world as a very sort of inhospitable place in comparison which i i really loved uh, reading that and i suppose it's easier to depict that with this former incarnation of of the rusalka right the seductive attractive scantily clad young <laughs> young woman rather than this hag-like creature interestingly just as an, an aside here that in poland that i read that there's also the same distinction geographically so in podlasia you know in the north it's this ugly witch hag-like creature and the further south you go the more often it appears as a beautiful young young woman so but this this is like a staple of slavic culture right it, it appears so often in art and in even in more recent books like in andrei sapkowski's witcher series i don't know if you've heard of heard of that popular sort of modern fantasy books um they appear yeah you're right i think the first evidence we have for the term motorcycle comes from the 18th century um, but the jury is out on how far the actual image and the idea um, actually goes back ah so this is a relatively modern in- invention then yes i think so i mean the name um the idea of a green week or rusali week comes from a greco-roman spring festival of roses but at what point there's a much later development that actually that name was put onto the actual water sprite it would appear. So it's a kind of construction, then. I think so. Yeah. There are um, there are male sprites as well called uh, vadianoi, mm. but they're not as seductive. So we don't <laughs> see quite as many stories featuring them. <laughs> but. Katrusha, having returned from the larder where she had taken the remains of their dinner, approached her husband put a hand on his chest, looked him in the face, and then with a heavy sigh went to the stove. Maintaining a snore for all he was worth, Fedir Pluskavka half opened his eyes and observed his wife. He saw how she started the fire in the stove, placed a pot with water on the coals, and began to throw in some herbs, chanting strange words in a low voice that he was unaccustomed to hearing. Fedir's agitation was increasing with every minute. Fear, rage and curiosity fought within him. Finally, the latter prevailed. Pretending to be asleep, he watched what was going to happen next. When the water in the pot started boiling, it was as if a storm raged, a heavy rain pounded, and a strong thunder boomed over it. Then finally, in a squeaky and sharp voice like the rasp of iron, three words sounded, fly, fly, fly. At this moment, Katrusha quickly rubbed some ointment on herself, then flew up through the chimney. There's also, Obviously, you know, we have the, the title story, The Witches of Kiev. There are elements of seduction with these 
uh, witches too, right? Of course, there's the Sabbath and the famous... How do you pronounce this, Keith? Lisa Chora? This bold mountain? I think so, yeah. Lisa Chora. I mean, it's, um, it's Ukrainian spelling rather yeah. than, than a Russian one. In, so in Ukrainian, I think it's Chora, but in Russian it would be Gora. Yeah, very common as well, right? Um, appears in The Master and the Margarita and obviously the famous Mazurkski piece, yeah. Night on the Bold Mountain. I was interested in how in that story the witch character Katrusha is another kind of temptress, right? Hmm. And she leads her new husband Fedir into taking part in in the Sabbath and perhaps without without even wanting to, you know, it's a kind of general way in which women in these stories seem to be the harbingers of some kind of loss of morality or moral degradation somehow that the supernatural and the, the feminine are aligned together in terms of danger and, and seduction um, and they seem to lead men astray throughout the stories yeah most of the relationships certainly turn out tragically this story in particular i think there's um one of the more ambiguous ones so yes there's obviously the witch where at the same time uh, her husband has a ch- choice to follow her to the Sabbath and ends up playing a trick on her almost Mm. and well he does play a trick on her in order to pretend he's asleep then he performs the magic himself then he follows her so I think there's an element here of um, perhaps going beyond or uh, of curiosity killed a cat in that sense Mm -hmm. so if you were content with what he had which essentially is that his wife is wonderful for 29 days and all of a sudden for the 30th day of the month she turns into a witch. I mean, there's no prizes for guessing what that's referencing. Yeah, yeah, there, absolutely, absolutely. But if he'd have been content with that, then he would have lived happily ever after. Mm-hmm. But it was due to his actions ultimately that. Um, so it's his his is his own transgression that he's that he's punished for. You think potentially, yeah. I think towards the I mean towards the end of the story, I think it, it ends quite ambiguously in the sense that it, to what extent the whole relationship was built on presence. If, if you're married to uh, to a witch, well, the sense is certainly that if he hadn't have followed her, then it would been a tragic ending well the the introduction certainly suggests that he's punished for forsaking his orthodox faith that this is his greatest crime but uh, i don't know i found it closer to what you're suggesting so curiosity or maybe prurience or even a kind of disobedience not simply going along with this sort of straightforward married life uh, I mean I don't know I was thinking that you know along with the ov- obvious allusions to menstruation that there is a suggestion that when she leaves the bed and goes on these sort of nocturnal visits we could metaphorically think about it as related to adultery as well I don't know that that occurred to me yeah that's true yeah. I mean the, the depiction of the Sabbath with uh, well the activity that goes on certainly the orgiastic uh, uh, activities yeah. yeah and it was interesting to me that when she confesses to to her husband when she catches him there and describes what has happened it is again blamed on the maternal line she says that her mother brought her up in this particular way she was only 14 years old was kind of brought up in in this tradition and she saw her husband her new husband as a chance for salvation but that he wasn't able to go through with that because of his uh, curiosity or yeah, yeah. so it's an, in- it's an interesting perhaps not quite as straightforward as it would appear to begin with yeah i think you're right i think what um something else is that's interesting is the the number of um folkloric elements that it lists um so if you think of this again going back to the vogue for things that are ukrainian and um more ethnographic project the the witch's sabbath is described in great detail uh particularly the the number of folkloric figures so piri piri vietni elisaviki Vodjaniki, Domoviki, etc., all of which um, have been referenced, I presume would have been referenced when they were written for Russian audiences as well. These would be new terms to uh, one of uh, someone's contemporaries. There are are equivalent 
Russian terms. So Lisevicki in Russian would be Lyoshi. Mm. Uh, Vadyanik, oh, sorry, Lisevik would be a Lyoshi. Vadyanik would be a uh, Vadyanoi. And Damovik would be a Damovoi. So mm. they're quite similar, but slightly different. They would be recognizable, but slightly different. It's quite a remarkable passage, this, isn't it? The the moment that we first get a picture of a picture of the Sabbath it has this frantic, manic, bacchanalian character, doesn't it? There's a bit of density to the language at this point that hasn't really been there throughout the rest of the story. It kind of comes alive a little yeah, bit at this yeah, at this I moment. I would agree. I mean, the narrative is generally speaking fairly fairly fast moving. I think in in this tale. Yeah. In particular, but yeah, you're right. This is um, a new level of detail, and which just adds to the sense of cacophony and movement and uh, the scale. This story, the evil eye, one of the shorter stories in the collection, uh, features a figure that is something like something of a devil-like creature, but with Oriental characteristics. Yes, clearly. So I think what we, as we said, what we see. Uh, before this opposition between Ukraine and Poland, this idea of godliness and ungodliness. In this tale, the, the demonic element is seen, or the negative element is seen not as Polish, but as more oriental. So he has a f- wears a gown of fine cloth, he has a Turkish knife, a silver handle decorated with precious gems, and this is all stuck behind a Persian sash. This is combined with, shall we say, ungodly elements, so he... Refuses to say the Lord's Prayer, as is custom among the Orthodox. Yeah, and he does try to seduce these these daughters yes. with material mm. wealth as well, right? One of the interesting things about this story that I gather from the introduction is its interest in Cossackdom and that the writer of the introduction, Svitlana Kruz, um, suggests that it's even modelled, structurally modelled on a Cossack Duma, a form of epic poetry uh, in that it contains 14 sections. There are 14 verses in Duma, apparently. Um, maybe I'll include a clip of a Duma if I can find one. So this is a point where the folkloric elements are not just in terms of the content, but even carried over into the structural side of things, which I thought was curious. Yes, Duma were meant to be sung, I gather, and they were recited with musical accompaniment. And this kind of comes through to the, to the repetitions in particular. So say the first two parts begin with the same line yeah. and with this kind of vocal declaration, oh, Cousin Mikita's daughters were good. And similarly, oh, Cousin Mikita's daughters were good. And then, then the narrative moves into a more prosaic, a more dialogic this introduction of these Turkish and Persian figures, um, maybe you know more about this historically than I, than I do. Um, is this based on real interaction between Cossacks and these these cultures, or is it a, a generalized Orientalism of sorts, do you think? Yeah, I mean, they, there certainly was a great deal of interaction, a great deal of... Um, Wars between them. Yeah, I would say this detail, I don't know, I, I, but I would just say it seems to be fairly non-specific. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just pointing at this. It's just demonising. Turkish knife and a Persian sash. Yeah, just highlighting the, the alien quality of the, the Oriental, I think, more than anything. Yeah. Sorry, Wandering Light Light as well has the same lyrical elements and, and repetitions. It's like the first paragraph begins, a warrior flew upon his horse towards Kiev, and that's repeated in the second paragraph as well. And I think in a lot of ways this is the most um, lyrical tale in that it doesn't really follow a narrative it's just a sense of loss um, There isn't really a sense of godliness or ungodliness or where the where the supernatural isn't portrayed in, negative, in a negative fashion, or it doesn't possess a moral import it's just um, a light that leads, again, Cossack warrior to his beloved's grave and he dies there. So it's a very short and kind of lyrical piece on loss, but there's no 
um, real question here of right or wrong or, or, or moral. So, so you don't see the appearance of this, this true love's face as another example of that danger and seduction through in, in femininity and leading this warrior to his death or to his grave. Oh, I had not actually. I just read it as um, somebody who uh, was kind of a meditation on loss, and that was his kind of beloved appearing to him from beyond the grave. I guess I prefer it in with your reading, to be honest. That it's it's actually something quite beautiful about it if we read it that way, rather than the the true love beyond the grave being associated with this beckoning light. Uh-huh. Okay, yeah. Which is one way of seeing it, I think. Um, another example of this siren-like uh, figure. Given the tone of the piece, it does feel like something far more somber, purely melancholic, rather than to do with danger necessarily, but something like a mood piece, something like a, a lyric piece, almost. To be fair, that was how I, yeah, that was how I, how I read it. Yeah. No, I, I, like, I like that reading more than my own, to be honest. <laughs> At the very top of the hill was a smooth clearing, black as coal and bald as the hairless head of an old man. This gave rise to the hill's name, Lisa Hora. In the middle of the clearing stood a platform that had seven steps and was covered with black cloth. On it sat a huge bear with two monkey faces, a goat's horns, a snake's tail, a hedgehog's spiny coat all over his body, skeleton arms, and a cat's claws on his fingers. Around it, at some distance from the glade, was a whole bazaar of witches, warlocks, Upuri, Perevertni, Lisoviki, Vodjaniki, Domoviki, and all sorts of other unseen and unheard of creatures. A giant squatted in front of a symbolon, the size of a barge, with strings as thick as rope. The giant played the cymbalum with huge rakes, shaking his pointed beard, blinking his eyes and distorting his already hideous face. Nearby a whole gang of small chortu, each one more heinous and clumsier than the other, banged on cauldrons, drummed on kegs, beat iron plates and bawled at the top of their voices. Then a string of old witches, shriveled like mushrooms, led the Juravel dance, and capering beat the Chotzak with their scraggy feet so hard that the sound of their bones could be heard all around, and sang in such a voice that it hurt one's ears. I suppose we we can't but at least make some reference to the final story in the collection, God's Fool, in the it includes a figure that is another very enduring character in, in Russian literature and, and maybe something even quite quintessentially Russian, the holy fool or uh, God's fool as it appears in, in this case. Yeah, it's a very interesting figure from what I seem to have picked up. So the, the kind of archetype of the holy fool is um, the image of Nicholas of Nikolai Pskov, who was Ivan the Terrible's counsellor. So he's been associated in the, the kind of popular imagination as um, a religious figure that in some way tempers a more secular royalty, uh, more mm. secular interests. And what is definitely always current in this idea of the religious fool is this idea of divination or being able to see the future. But there are various uh, scholars who say that the actual original images for this holy fool, they weren't true, it was more of a faked madness or a mm. faked performance almost in order to transmit ethical lessons to whoever listens. So I think perhaps there's some kind of Socratic irony or process of motivation to look within oneself and to judge one's own learning and knowledge. We, we've been discussing this and, and obviously this particular figure recurs throughout Russian literature, obviously in Dostoevsky and in Tolstoy and contemporaneously in Pushkin, but it's not clear which text actually actually came first. Certainly Somov's text is published first, but uh, Boris Godunov is published slightly later, but may have been written earlier. And I was interested in whether this is might be one of the first depictions of it in Russian secular literature, given that it's such an enduring figure. And I mean, Mercer wrote, talked about him as a writer who laid the foundations of lots of motifs that would recur and I wonder if this is an example of that again. I think yeah I think possibly yeah. I mean I've 
the reading I've done around this uh, doesn't really reference Samov, even though this may well be one of the first instances depicting this character. It's not one of the the most famous or the most well researched. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I guess what is interesting about it, as you talk about the inclusion in this collection, is the the supernatural isn't given objective reality through the narrator. It is more a sense of viewing it through the consciousness of this holy fool. And I think, again, this relates as much to the idea of um, an ethnographic impulse more than anything. And this um, urge to really capture a Russian spirit through things that are quintessentially Russian. I mean, Eva Thompson, for instance, in talk about this a long time ago uh, now, 1973, uh, most the history of this figure beginning with um, really cited as coming well, from the, the pre-Mongol period, so the 13th century. It comes from what was, was then an, an Eastern interest in mystical experiences. And then from the 14th to the 17th century, 36 of these figures are canonized. Mm. Begins to become, to have a real influence on the, the popular consciousness of the time. And it starts to replace more traditional epic heroes with longer folk tales or... Bellini. But where it actually appears in kind of educated secular literature beyond that popular the popular notion is, is interesting. Mm. Uh, and it was an integral part of peasant life from the 18th century onwards. Um, as Thompson notes again, in the 16th and 17th century, there was generally noted to be maybe one holy fool per county. And mm. it was the job of the sheriff of this country to look after them. Whereas in the 18th century, that changed and it became the role of the of the township, the role of the peasants themselves. So it's very much a motif associated with the Russian peasantry. I mean, that's interesting because we started by talking about the ways in which he might be considered as a originator of, or well, at least one of the originators of psychological realism and that this story kind of stands outside the collection for that particular reason but maybe its inclusion within this book can be connected to the to the rest of them not just through the holy fool sort of supernatural qualities but also through that more ethnographic project that some of seems to be part of in in a lot of these tales another thing as mercero notes is that there is a, a duel in this story which is yet another motif that recurs again and again in in Russian literature. But that's interesting because that's more of a um, of an aristocratic motif than a peasant motif. Yeah, so it is. have the, the combination of two. Yeah, absolutely. It's not it goes beyond Russian literature of course, but it when I when I think of Russian literature and and figures in Russian literature obviously Lermontov dies in a in a duel Pushkin as well, right? Pushkin yeah, dies well, he doesn't die as soon as Lermontov dies. But as a result he, of he it. Dies as a result of it, yeah, a couple of days later. You know, they appear in Chekhov stories as well later on. It does seem like this is one of the origins at least of a lot of a lot of things and and it seems a shame to me that some of might not be quite as well known as he as he should be. What is your impression as to why he might have fallen out of favor or not be a kind of canonical name within Russian and Ukrainian literature? I mean there are theories in the in the introduction to the to the book, but I wonder what impression you had about that. I think um, perhaps because, well, he died so young in the time he's writing. Um, so the 1830s really is seen as the time of the flowering of the Russian romantic short story. And it seems that some of, most of his stories are published in the 1820s. I mean, critics have made the point that the 1820s itself has been relatively neglected, certainly in terms of prose, certainly in terms of kind of critical investigations and the development of this discourse around Russian literature itself. So not just perhaps Somov's role in the development of that discussion, uh, but there are other figures as well that have um, lost the way simply because of that. I mean, the 18... So I guess he's, he's writing short stories at a time where most people are writing poetry, certainly. Yeah, and perhaps mainly because, as we discussed earlier, the kind of things for which he is known, for which Mercero is identified... They're generally seen as becoming more important and more mainstream later. One of the reasons in this in this introduction is suggested that he's he's completely outshone by Gogol, who's publishing 
well, around the same time and, and slightly later as well, who's using these Ukrainian motifs as well, um, certainly including a lot of Ukrainian folk culture and writing some stories in what we might call the Gothic tradition as well, but of a quite of a very different character, I, I, I think, mm. personally, much less somber, um, much more bombastic to my mind. <laughs> No, true. This is yeah. partly that is um, perhaps Gogol's style. Partly the number of different critical approaches, really, that have been applied to Gogol over the years. There's always it's a kind of writer that there's always something um, new to be found, yeah. and particularly seen within the framework of the development of the Russian kind of psychological fiction. Gogol has become a much more famous name. He belongs to the strand that is more only rational, spiritual psychology that eventually anticipates Dostoevsky, whereas Somov here is a more uh, rational depiction of the human mind, I think, which mm. associates him with, um, with Tolstoy, as most wrote us. The other reason given is perhaps to do with the position uh, between the Russian and Ukrainian canons and a kind of contested position that is never really resolved, uh, whether we can consider him a purely Ukrainian writer mm. or a Russian writer. Do you think you would you would like to see more work being done on, on this period and, and on some of, in terms of academic publications, do you think there's, there's still more to be found in him? I certainly think so. I'm sure there's lots in archives somewhere. I think not just his prose as well, but um, his criticism. He's obviously a very intelligent individual. His mm. interests span various genres. I mean, you said he started off as, as a poet, as most authors did. Dabbled in criticism, dabbled in kind of more journalistic prose and folkloric texts, such as the one we have here. I, I know there is some some work to promote some of being done by modern Ukrainian writer Yuri Vinutok, who's publishing edited collections of Ukrainian Gothic tales. I think this book is one of the only examples of that kind of work that we... Certainly in, in recent years, this seems to be one of the few things available in terms of Ukrainian Gothic specifically. But I would love to see some of those collections being translated, for instance. I think there's... Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how many collections have come out in Russian in the original language yeah. as far as I'm aware there's that one in 1984 and then another in 2014 but nothing in the nothing in between that so no maybe that is the that new publication is the start of renewed interest and we will see a lot more translations coming out but who knows let's hope so so Keith Walmsley thanks so much for for joining me on Shades podcast We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Sherds Podcast. If you have any questions or comments about our conversation, please write to us at sherdspodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter. And if you enjoy the show and you'd like to support us, please write us a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Shirts Podcast is part of the Holdfast Network. Go to holdfastnetwork.com for more programs you may enjoy.